Well, good morning, good morning. It is great to be back with you. I was supposed to be here a couple weeks ago, but uh, I was thankful C.J. Neuendorp willingly filled in for me as I was recovering from a slight little bit of a hernia surgery. So it could have been an interesting morning based on the amount of, well, never mind that. It was probably wise to let him do the preaching that morning. Uh, so it's interesting. Uh, I got to get my, my whiteboard set up here uh, because here was how my week went. I love my grandkids. Oh man, do I love my grandkids. Even better when they come visit. But let me tell you what happens. <coughs> so um, starting last week, Sunday, till this week, Thursday, I had no voice. So here's what I was practicing. And uh, if you've ever been at my house and we've tried to play Pictionary, you're gonna see that you don't wanna be on my team. Because I was going to practice doing the sermon in a sentence, but I was gonna do the sermon in a, in, a, in a word. So I'm gonna try to draw something. Keep your guesses to a minimum because I don't wanna be embarrassed. So here we go. It's something like this. And then there's something like this. And that's supposed to be that. And that, boy, that, that, that's really bad. And this, is, that looks somewhere between a swan and a dinosaur or something that's in the book of Revelations. But good news is I got my voice, so I'm, we don't have to worry about that. But I want you to ponder what the sermon in a sentence would have been. I'll give you a clue. Wow. <laughs> you know, what's, what's interesting and what I think so powerful about this series that we are experiencing together in, from Philippians this summer is that I think we would all agree that as we look around the world around us, whether that's at work, whether that's at school, whether that's you know, at the coffee shop, wherever it is, it seems like the world is in various levels, depending on what the news of the day is, various levels of despair. We may not verbalize it as such, but there's just kind of a tension in the air, there's a little bit of despair, and quite frankly, there seems to be less and less hope. And I think that's why this series, that's why these verses that we're just taking the deep dive into this summer are so powerful, they're so good. And as you know, and as we kicked off a couple weeks ago, we're gonna be studying Paul's whatever statements that is found in Philippians 4. And the thing that again, I think maybe you've already realized or has been taught to you already is that each one of the descriptors, each one of the words that we're gonna kinda of dive into throughout the weeks is really a focus on Jesus. It's really a focus on Jesus because Jesus is the fullness of truth. And today we're gonna to talk about Jesus is the fullness of what it is to be noble, or I'm gonna be more often using the words honorable. Jesus is the fullness of what is right and what is pure and what is lovely and what is admirable. And here's the best part, and this could have been a really short sentence, so, if, so if, if my voice goes and you don't remember, if I don't get to the really good, so if I don't get to the picture, this is, this is the best news of this whole thing. Friends, when you say yes to Jesus, when we say yes to Jesus, we all inherit what is the mind of Christ. And so when you go through that list, 
When you go through that list, truth and honorable and right and pure and lovely and admirable, that's the mind that we are all given. That's the mind that we're inherited. So the big question of the day is, will you, will I live from that? Will we live in what we have been given, what we have inherited, the mind of Christ? So what I want us to do is I'm going to read the whole text again, Philippians 4. It's probably in your book, Mark, if you haven't marked it in your book or on your phone as a favorite. Again, one of the things we're asking us to do is to read this passage several times throughout the week. So let's read it together. Again, I'll start in verse 4. Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Whatever you have learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put it into practice. And the God of peace will be with you. Did you see it? Did you notice? Did you notice how the beginning and the end were bookends of the God of peace? God's peace will be with you. All the stuff in the middle, it's about God's peace being with us, God's peace being with us. You know, one of the other things that I was listening to some commentators on these particular ones, and I guess I'd never thought about this, because rejoice is one of those preacherish words. It's one of those Sunday morning words. So what, what actually is rejoice? What is, he, what is he calling us to do? What is Paul calling us to do? I thought this was really good. Very simple, but it says this. You could almost exchange the word rejoice for find your joy in the Lord. Let me read how that sounds. Find your joy in the Lord always. Because I think that sets up where we're gonna go with the rest of our sermon. And I'll say it again, find your joy in the Lord. And what is this gentleness that's in verse five? I remember a year or so ago, we talked about gentleness and I did, whew, probably worse than my drawing, borderline, when I came out and I sang a Mr. Rogers song and I had my sweater, because that is the epitome of gentleness in most of our minds. Wow, I've really put myself out on a limb out here in the auditorium, haven't I? You've, you've seen some of my weaker moments, singing Mr. Rogers and drawing. But that's gentleness. Gentleness, if you think about it, and it's so shown to us several times in the New Testament, is humility. Christ, the epitome of humility, took off all the glories that he had in heaven, humbled himself and came to earth. That's what gentleness is all about. And then I like to do this. If you go on from five, the second part of 5b where it says, let all your gentleness be evident to all, you could insert right in between there, because the Lord is near. Because the Lord is near. Now what is that? I mean, part of it is, yeah, he's near us and he's around us and he's always with us at all times, and, and I'll give us that. 
But really, if you compare the way in the original language to other times where it's referenced throughout the New Testament, it's more talking about the second coming. God's second coming, Christ coming again is near. So because that's happening, we can do the first part. Because that's happening, we can rejoice. Because that's happening, we should let our gentleness be evident to all. It's interesting, as a point of reference, if he's coming, and if we're gonna live out of that, Romans chapter 12 says this, and I think it's a good thing for us to remember, just kind of as a background verse as we're talking the rest of this morning. Background verse, Romans chapter 12 says this. It says, because God is coming, do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it is mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. Friends, it's not ours. It's not ours to get the last word in. It's not ours to get revenge. And I think all of that kind of sets the stage. Because the Lord is near. We don't have to be anxious. The peace of God. Let's think about that for just a second. What is the peace of God? I think there's a direct correlation between the peace of God and Paul's contentment that he talks about just a few verses farther down in chapter 4, where it says, verse 11, I'm not saying this because I'm in need, for I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances. I know that what it is to be in need, I know what it, what it is to have plenty, I've learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well or fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want, I can do all this through him who gives me strength. So when we think about the peace of God, I think that's what Paul's trying to tell us, is that there's a contentment that comes. And again, peace of God at the beginning, Peace of God at the end. And you know, it says, do not be anxious. You know, it, it's interesting because a couple of things, and I'm not gonna go into this, but I, I think, and I'm not, I wanna acknowledge that there are things medically related that can create and cause some level of anxiousness. But we, as a care team, that's our new name, by the way. You'll be hearing all about that. We used to be pastoral care, but in talking to some of the young people, they didn't know what pastoral care was. But if I just said care team, that made sense to them. So we're going to make that change. So in the care team, we had one of our local Christian counselors come and speak with us. And it was really, really, really interesting. Right here in Pella, Iowa, I sound like the music man, don't I? Right here in Pella, Iowa, you know what the number one thing that they see and deal with as counselors? Anxiety and stress, particularly in our young people. Anxiety and stress, so it's real. Christians, people who follow Jesus are not immune to this idea of anxiety, but yet, you wanna hear kind of the ironic part about this last week? I was rather anxious about drawing a something and about preparing a sermon and about whether I'd have a voice. There was a level of anxiousness so I think we can all relate to 
There's, there's just, sometimes there's just an anxiousness, whether that's things going on at work, things going on in our family, things going on in the world, things going on in our community. There's just always this level of anxiousness, but yet Paul tells us, do not be anxious. And as I studied the text over the last week, I was reminded of a story that I thought, you know what, that, that, the scripture that I just read the story I'm going to share, I thought, just painted a perfect picture of what Paul's trying to do as he wrote this letter to his friends in Philippi. And it's this. There was an ER nurse who deals with anxiety and people coming in. And so they asked him, how do you deal with that? What do you do? How do you calm people down? What is, your, what is the secret to doing that? So when people come in to see a doctor and they're at a high level of anxiety, where they can't function, they can't think, they can barely breathe, all of that, the worst of the worst case scenarios. What do you do? How do you help people? And he said, this is what I do. He said, I look them right in the eye. And I tell them, hi, my name is Brian. I'm really good at my job. And we're gonna get through this together. I want you to do this for me. I want you to breathe in. Look me in the eye and breathe out. Breathe in. Breathe out. And he says they slowly, when they keep their eyes focused on him, and he talks to him in a calm voice. It's amazing how their breathing slows down. You can see and sense that their heart rates go down on the monitors. Things are starting to happen. And I think that's the beauty of what Paul's doing for us in this letter. Think about it this way. I think God is inviting us to take our eyes, whatever that thing is that's making you anxious, and look him in the eyes. Because you know what? God's really good at his job. He's really good at his God job. And we just sang the chorus of one of the songs, Behold Him. Lift up your eyes. See the Son of Heaven. Because I think as we breathe in and we go through and we think about whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, as we go through that list and we think about that, I think our breathing starts to slow down. I think we can become a little less anxious about all the stuff as long as we keep our eyes fixed on Jesus. So today, we're gonna dive in a little deeper to the whatever is honorable part. I'm not gonna spend tons and tons of time just to give you enough of a background to kind of understand. Again, the Greek, I'm gonna butcher this as bad as I butchered my drawing. Semnos, S-E-M-N-O-S. And it's semnates, I guess. I'm not a Greek, uh, but it's gonna be close to that. But essentially what it means is noble, which is what we have in the NIV, honorable, which is in the ESV and some other translations, or dignified. And it's interesting, that particular word is only used four times in other places throughout the New Testament. And it was used by the ancient Greeks to describe their gods, to describe their greatness, their majesty, their deserving of honor. 
But then over time, by the time Paul was using it, it morphed into more of a people that are marked by seriousness. Or it's describing a person who is not swayed by outward happenings. One of the places you find that particular word is in 1 Timothy, where it talks about this is what a deacon should be. Side note, if you are a part of our family and did not vote on your way in, straight out those doors, you have an opportunity to vote for our deacons and elders, those who are going to be in leadership over us for the next year. So I encourage you to do that. It's also found in Titus, where the leaders are encouraged to show their integrity and their dignity. So essentially, it's a steady person known for thoughtful reflection and well-reasoned, grace-filled responses to life's difficult situations. There's a weight to their thinking. There's a steadiness in the way they process the world around them. That's what Paul is inviting us to think about, to ponder. You see, so in my mind, I'm thinking part Mr. Rogers, as I mentioned, part Mother Teresa, and part my grandma Plate, who was just the sweetest little lady. And that's partly true. Because all of those people, if you were to summarize them in one word, it's actually a hyphenated word, is that they are non-reactionary. They're non-reactionary people. They are people who know how to keep the temperature down in a room, in a situation, in a family, on a team, when everything else is being stirred up. Boring? Absolutely not. Absolutely essential and revolutionary? I think they are. They just don't act or react in knee-jerk ways. And I think as we look at flourishing in a world that's seemingly losing hope, in a world that there are others who find their joy in stirring up trouble or causing chaos, I think we can be set apart. I think we're called to be set apart. You know, one of the things that I personally love about the Chosen series, I know many of you watched it. If you haven't, I'm going to highly recommend it and encourage it. But one of the things I love about that whole series is the way they show Jesus. They show this exact thing. They show through his gentleness, through the way he reacts to people, through his non-reactionary way, how people are just drawn to him. People that normally were not going to be around the religious people. Think about it. The woman at the well. The woman caught in adultery. I mean, Matthew, the tax collector. The people with the lepers, I guess is what I'm thinking. I mean, the list goes on and on. And as you see how that's portrayed, because I think that is all true to what Scripture tells us, is that Jesus draws them in with his non-reactionary, his non-judgmental. He just loves them. He's grace-filled. He's understanding, but he mixes it with truth. People encountered a calm and cool and collected. 
So I'm sitting there as I'm thinking this last week, who in my life, who in my life has played that role? Let me ask it this way. Have you ever had, and this one's a little bit too personal, otherwise I would have had this as a neighborhood discussion question, but just in your own mind, think about this. Who in your life, if you've ever had a situation where you wanted to share something deeply personal that you were absolutely convinced that they would be repulsed, they would react in anger, they would shut you out, they would turn you away, but then they didn't. How did that person make you feel? Loved, seen, accepted? Or another way to think about this is this, and this one was a little easier, probably could have been a group discussion question, but I'll let you think on this on your, who in your life has been that person that was the calming influence? Maybe on your team. Maybe the one that at work that always is the one, isn't stirring the pot. They're the ones that bring reason and calm the situation. What is it about them? Would you agree that we are all naturally drawn to these non-reactionary people, much like people were drawn to Jesus? So here's the point of the day. The point is, maturing Christians are called to learn to think in a non-reactionary way. I'm going to go one step further and say that's God's way of thinking. That's Christ's way of thinking. Because again, if you look at that list, I would say and I would suggest and I would argue that those are all attributes of Jesus himself. And are we not all called to become more and more like Jesus? So, here we go. For all those who have been wondering, here's the sermon in a sentence. Be the duck. I know, shocking that's a duck. Be the duck. Be the duck. So what is a, what a duck? Well, if you think about a duck, calm and cool, where nobody sees. Projections, or you could think, I guess I could have gotten away with a swan, but it's not quite as catchy. If you think about those animals as they go through the water, it just looks like they're gliding through life. So for each one of us, be the duck. Can we become people who are safe, grace-filled, non-reactionary? When people throw stuff at us, whether that's online or in conversations, or in the heat of the moment. Can I remind us what Paul says in the book of Romans? Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For God's wrath. For it is written, it is mine to avenge. I will repay. So, sounds good. How do we do that? How do we do that? Isn't that the big question of the moment? I mean, hopefully we can all leave here with at least an idea. How do we move forward to becoming more like Jesus? Becoming more non-reactionary? And again, I think the answer is in our text. It says this, think about, and then shortly after that it says, put into practice. So how does this happen? We think about and we put into practice. 
So, I don't know about you, but that's one of those things, again, that I've heard for a long time in church. And I'm thinking to myself as I'm preparing, what does think about or ponder really mean to a guy like me? Am I supposed to think about? That would last about that long, if that long at all. So what does that mean? How we think, I think, is absolutely critical. So I'm going to suggest a couple of things. What it means to me when we talk about think about or ponder. Because I think Jesus taught us throughout the New Testament to examine our fear, our worry, and our anxiety as clues to who we are worshiping or what we are worshiping. I'll repeat that. Sometimes our anxiety might be like a check engine light as to are we worshiping the wrong thing or do we have idols that have taken the place of Jesus? So, first one I'm gonna suggest, again, these are pretty simple, straightforward. As you evaluate your heart, when you feel those anxious moments coming on, here's my suggestion. Evaluate your heart and ask, what is it that I'm valuing? Because for many of us, money, health, reputation, relationships, they're valuable. Not gonna say they're not, not gonna try to, that's not the point, but when they get out of whack, and we, when we become anxious, when they become threatened, But when our hearts align with God's values, I think we start to view the dangers of this life a little bit differently. Death and discomfort and dire circumstances all have a different lens or a different sting to them. In my short time as a pastor, as I do funerals, those who have families that believe, there's a whole, yes, there's still sadness. Yes, there's still mourning. There's a whole different outlook on what's going on in those families that this is it. This is the end of the road. There's nothing more. So when God's values and our values align, we're going to understand what's most important and we'll live out of that. So here's the first thing I would encourage you as you feel those moments of anxiousness coming on. Whatever, however that presents itself in you, think about what will last eternally? What will last eternally? Second thing is, think about, ponder as you sense those things. What is your view of God? I thought this was an interesting quote. Tim Keller, famous pastor, author, just recently passed away. He writes this, worry is not believing God will get it right. And bitterness is believing that God got it wrong. Worry is not believing that God will get it right. Bitterness is believing that he got it wrong. So how we respond to life's troubles reflect our view of God and whether we trust, whether we trust how he's acted toward us, whether we trust that he's a loving God, whether we trust that he has our good in mind. Because many times, 
throughout scripture and I think probably in most of our lives, when we don't see things happening the way that we should, we take matters into our own hand. There's a lack of trust. We try to control our own destiny and we focus on what we can do. And we don't trust God to keep us safe. So my encouragement to all of us in those moments, not only think about what will last eternally, but think about God's faithfulness. That sounds so simple, but yet, how rarely do we actually do it? I'm not a farmer, but I have an opportunity to talk to a lot of farmers, and I'm not saying they all do this, but it is amazing how farmers in general, unfair to them, worry and become anxious about whether we get enough rain, whether we don't get enough rain, whether we get enough sunshine, whether we don't get enough sunshine, whether this... God has been faithful. God has been faithful. And you can insert your own whatever you become anxious about into that Remembering that God has been thankful, faithful. So as we think about and as we ponder, we move to a more Christ-like, non-reactionary way of thinking. And then verse 9 tells us to put into practice, or basically, how do I apply that? How do I apply this? Very practical. Years ago, I remember Pastor Kevin talking about this, and there's a level of self-control. You could call it a five-second rule. For some of us, it may need to be 10 seconds. For some of us, it might need to be two minutes. For some of us, 20. For some of us, it might need to be 24 hours. But allow some time before you react. You know yourselves. Allow some time. Intentionally choose to put time and space between what's coming in and what comes out of you. Process your thinking in a God-honoring way. Because I think, and as I just mentioned, I think there are two keys to self-control, if you will. One is time, and one is space. And who's one of our better examples, if not the best example? How often do we read, Jesus went away to lonely places? He went away to lonely places. I've got a beautiful gift that was given to me just recently since I started. Painting. Sometime I'd love to have you stop by my office just to see it. It's a watercolor, but Psalm 61 verse 2 is the verse that is on it. And I think this is so powerful and so applicable, and this is what Psalm 61 2, if you're not familiar, from this translation it says, when my heart is overwhelmed, insert anxious, insert whatever it is, when my heart is overwhelmed, lead me to the rock that is higher than I. God's faithfulness. Step away. Rather than being reactionary, step away. God, lead me to you, my rock, so that I know how to say what I need to say. How can I be more Christ-like? It's willfully creating time and space so that God's Holy Spirit can slow us down to give us margin that allows us to think and pray about how we want to respond. You know, one of the songs that quite frequently we sing 
is about surrendering. And I got, I got thinking this morning, this is not one of those areas of your life that I don't normally think about when I talk about I surrender all. But this morning I'm going to challenge you to think about is this part of your mind, is your thinking, is your thinking something that you need to re-surrender to God? Because I think he's calling us to think about. Think about things that are true. Think about things that are honorable. Whatever is right. Whatever is pure. Whatever is lovely. Whatever is admirable. Again, remember the bookends. Remember the bookends. I'm going to invite the worship team to come on back up if you guys want to Move my duck, that's okay too. That'd be probably best, actually. <laughs> so as we close, I'm gonna ask some very obvious questions. I, maybe they've been ruminating in your own brain. But the one that kept coming back to me is, what would our lives look like if we constantly responded to all the things in our life in a non-reactionary kind of thinking? What would it look like if this group right here and the lives that we touch, if we lived out of a mantra of be the duck. Be the one that's calm and cool and collected. Be the one that's not stirring up trouble. Be the one that brings peace and calm and grace to all that life's throwing at us. Think about your relationships. I mean, seriously, think about your relationships. How would they be different if this were part of who you became? At work, your family, would you parent a little bit differently? How would they be different? If we think about, let your gentleness be evident to all, which was in our text, how might this way of thinking affect our opportunities to be a light in the world? A couple of action steps. One, I'm going to encourage you to Throughout the week, read from the Philippians 4, 4 through 9, just several times. Challenge. For those of you who like to go a little bit deeper, there is a website, and I apologize, you can ask me afterwards, I probably should have had this on the screen, but it just came to me. Uh, Desiring God has some beautiful, where he literally goes through, and if you go to the lab section, Desiring God, all labs, and then you get, there's like all kinds of scripture. And there's like 12 different nine-minute videos just on this passage alone. And you're gonna start to see things, and it's, it's really amazing what he does, so as a side note. Second action step, by each door on the tables. I got us all little duck stickers. So as you leave, grab yourself a duck sticker. Can I even ask you to take it one step further? In those places where you know that you are most likely to become anxious, maybe that's on the back of your phone. Maybe that's on your steering wheel if you're in traffic a lot. Maybe that's in your bathroom mirror. Maybe that's around your kitchen table. That's where I want you to stick it. That's where I want those duck stickers to go because here's what I want those duck stickers to remind you. Listen to this. I want those duck stickers to remind you to pray. 
to present your requests to God, to ponder or to think about, to practice, because all that leads to the promise that God's peace will be with you.